Today's episode is brought to you by Julie Meyerson's Nonfiction, a novel that explores maternal love as an emotional foundation to both crave and fear, a story of damage and addiction, recovery and creativity, compassion and love. Nonfiction, a novel, is an unflinching account of a mother, daughter, wife, and author reckoning with the world around her. Called Powerful and Utterly Compelling by Sarah Waters and Glitteringly Painful by Rachel Cusk, Meyerson's novel asks, can a writer ever be trusted with the truth of her own story? Nonfiction and Novel is out January 2nd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's conversation with Elle Nash is kind of a best-of-both-worlds conversation. Her latest book, Deliver Me, on the level of theme and politics and existential questions, braids motherhood, misogyny, sexuality, poverty, religion, capitalism, industrial animal slaughter, and cross-species kink into a situation and atmosphere that not only exerts a certain inescapable pressure on our protagonist, but also provides innumerable interesting things to explore together. But on the other hand, Elle is also, perhaps more than anything else, interested in language and in creating atmosphere with language. So today's conversation is also very much a conversation as well on craft and what it means tangibly to take risks on the page. So our conversation... I think similar to the one with Melanie Ray Tone, where in talking with Melanie about her writing, we end up talking about the act of writing. Also with Elle, our conversation is in a way both about the book and about the making of it and the considerations of it as we go. For the bonus audio archive, Elle reads from Elizabeth V. Aldrich's Ruthless Little Things, a book that is described as a kaleidoscope of sapphic saturnalia and fast living, stroking the barrel and pouring rope fuel over your clean sheets, a book of callow lust and hollow predation, of addiction and personality disorders, of heartbreak and wild nights, gallery shows, incontinent ragers, a tender, sore-hearted transmission from a self-made prison and an earnest flight toward escape. This contribution from Elle joins Kate Zambrano and Sophia Samatar's epic 40-minute call-and-response reading to each other, a long-form conversation with translator Megan McDowell about Latin American horror, particularly the work of Mariana Enriquez, and much more. The bonus audio is only one possible thing to choose from if you join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. And every supporter can join our collective brainstorm of who to invite next. And every listener supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode, with the best things I discovered while preparing, most of what is referenced during the conversation, and where to explore once you're done listening. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with L. Nash.
Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist, short story writer, and editor L. Nash. Nash's debut, Animals Eat Each Other, was the novel that prompted Publishers Weekly to call her a debut writer to watch, and for past Between the Covers guest Sarah Gerard to say, a savage, nuanced dive into the dynamics of queer sexuality, love, and anti-love, jealousy, sadomasochism, Satanism, and everything else caught in the fray of a woman's self-abandonment. Nash's subtly spare prose renders matter-of-fact what we're so often afraid to articulate to ourselves, let alone to the people we give ourselves over to. Their debut story collection, Nudes, was picked by Dennis Cooper for his favorite fiction of 2021, was dubbed a sad girl summer book for Cosmopolitan UK, and of which Entropy magazine said, Relentlessly, whether the scene is a suburban home or an urban sex club, the aura of existential threat is born. Her next book was the novella, Gag Reflex, once again featured by Dennis Cooper in his favorite fiction of 2022, and of which Heavy Feather Review said, Nash's ability is that she isn't constrained to a subjective point of view at all, but may perhaps embody the omniscience of a daemon trapped in a physical form insufficient to its capacities. El Nash's work has appeared in Bomb, Guernica, Lithub, New York Tyrant, and many other places. She's the founding editor of Witchcraft Magazine, and she also is a writing teacher and consults on manuscripts for other writers. El Nash is here today to talk about her latest book, Deliver Me, published by Unnamed Press in the U.S. and forthcoming from Verve Books in the U.K. Chelsea G. Summers says, Deliver Me is a gift to readers who love a seriously unhinged woman. With the creation of Dee Dee, El Nash spelunks in the depths of human depravity and leaves readers, even me, gasping. A wild, disturbing, super smart novel, Deliver Me is unforgettable. Melissa Broder adds, to read the work of El Nash is to be restored to faith in wildness, wetness, and visceral power of contemporary American fiction. Deliver Me is a barbed liturgy of bugs, babies, meat, the gospel, women lusting women, women lusting men, and the human body. Get saved. Pass Between the Covers guest Brian Evanson adds, Deliver Me muddles the line between the intimate and the deranged in a way that keeps us off balance to the very end. And finally, Chris Hevener at Electric Literature says, Nash's Ozarks conjure the colorful and desperate scenes of Dorothy Allison and J.T. Leroy. Her descriptions of industrial killing call to mind Eric Schlosser and Upton Sinclair. The complex relationship between the main female characters echo Jeffrey Eugenides and Amy Hempel. The oppressive religiosity of the Southern Church summons Flannery O'Connor 
and Dennis Covington. The sum of this concoction is a hallucinatory pressure cooker of a novel that spills from Nash's soul onto your own. Welcome to Between the Covers, L. Nash. Thank you for having me. It's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to start with one of the origin stories of this book and how it influenced the structure of it. When you posted about the cover reveal, at the time people could first begin pre-ordering the book, you said, I started this novel before the pandemic was real in 2018. I was in a fugue state, breastfeeding, sleepless, struggling, the sharpness in mind ground down with the steep learning curve of newborn baby life. It took more out of me than I ever expected. I've been trying to write the same novel over and over again until a former mentor told me she just didn't feel like it was as quote-unquote dark and intellectual as she knew it could be. I felt so damaged by this, but maybe she was right. I set out to teach myself how to write a normal novel. I taught myself the basics of plot, of which I did not know, the elements of fiction I'd never learned. I read a million craft books, read 90-day novel because I read that Otessa Moshveg had used it too. This would be my basic bitch book, I decided. I finished the first draft in 11 weeks, but it took two years of refinements from then on to make it something truly real. What it morphed into toward the end was something that was darkly me more than anything I've ever written. I'm so proud of this book, which has taken a lot of my tears and my attempts to finish it. And you've echoed this in some of your interviews. In one, you say, I'm going to write this novel in three months, and I don't care how bad it is. And yet, in an attempt to write this normal novel, to be, I think, formally mechanical about it so that you could write anything at all, it seems like you found it became particularly meaningful to you. And like I just quoted, more darkly you than anything you've ever written. Uh, so I wanted to start here with two questions about this. The book in its broadest strokes is a classic double timeline, three-act structure, and the book is very pregnancy-centric. Those three acts are the three trimesters of pregnancy, and, and the pregnancy is the ticking clock that structures the suspense of the book. So my first question is, do you feel like this became a particularly meaningful book to you because of what you learned about writing plot and perhaps that the constraint of this format made what you did better? And then if that's true, how, how did it do that? Or do you feel like the surprise of your quote unquote normal book actually being not normal at all? was really despite the classic formal schematics that you adopted, that these constraints maybe just got you through the brain fog, but otherwise it wasn't the reason why the book became so meaningful. So in other words, do you think this new approach will carry forward for books that you write in the future that don't have these particular challenges of postpartum, of this postpartum period? Uh, and tell us how and why, if so. I think it's a little bit of both. I think what I learned about the process was that the first was there is this 
debate I think that exists between like plotless novels and plotted novels and character driven novels and plot driven novels. And I think what I kind of learned through that process, you know, it's like it's either plotted or it's got language. And it's almost like I felt probably at the time, oh, maybe that's not something that can meet in the middle, you know, because I am very language driven. I love I love work on a sentence level. And so when I said I'm, I'm going to write my basic bitch novel, it was this process of like letting go of that and just saying like, OK, we're just going to try to get to point A to point B. And I think that thing that surprised me was that after I did that, I was like, OK, I'm plotting. I'm doing this thing that so many people like view this as like lower art, I guess, to like plot mm-hmm. it. I was actually like, but I like the language of this. Like this still feels like me. I don't think I'm actually losing or letting go of anything. And I think the other thing that surprised me as well was that I think I gained a new understanding of plot overall. Like I don't think plot and character or plot and voice are at odds. I actually think that plot is just like what the character is thinking or what the character is doing. I think that plot actually exists even in things that are not necessarily plotted. It's just a different kind of through line in that respect. And so a lot of that surprised me just in terms of looking at these elements and trying to understand them for myself and also like exposing my misconceptions about what I thought about that kind of work. I do think that it's something that I will carry forward with me. I see a lot of value now in trying to understand where I'm going with a project before I actually sit down to begin it. So with Deliver Me, I sat I sat down and I I worked out where I wanted to go with the with like the storyline in about like two weeks and I had it on this big piece of butcher paper. And I mean, and it changed over time, of course. Like I wasn't like solidly stuck to it. But having that when then I sat down to draft it made it so easy to get through that first drafting process. And then it is honestly, for me, it was such a relief to have the whole draft completed because for me, like I'm an editor, like I love to edit. I love to edit my own work. I love to edit other people's work. And so I think for me, where I love to play is in that realm of like the carving, but I, in order to carve, like I need that big block of marble first Otherwise, I'm just trying to like manifest marble from air. And that feels like a little bit more difficult. Not that I don't enjoy it. Even now I'm like, I've got these two projects. One is going to be with this traditionally more like this plotted, like I'm going to have the plot written down and everything. And the other I've already written halfway into, but I kind of don't know where I'm going with it. And that one is, it's got 20, 25,000 words, but I've been working on it since 2021, you know? So it's a more slow going process, but maybe some novels just need that. You know, sometimes you look at a project and you're just like, I don't even know if I have like the skill set or like the life knowledge to, mm. <laughs> to complete this project yet. That's kind of that one. So I'm just kind of letting that sit and we'll see. We'll see where that one goes. So do you typically work on several books simultaneously? It wasn't my intention with Deliver Me, but whenever I would like hand off a draft of that, to my agent or to friends or or whatever you know to an editor I would then switch gears and I was working on like my story collection at the time and then also gag reflex which is my life journal novel so it was kind of like playing both of them off of each other like procrastinating one with the other right or what have you so I guess I guess so yeah <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see how it goes with that well I mean when you say that 
plot and character are not separate or not as separate as people make them out to be. I think one thing that, that really works in that regard with Deliver Me is that, as I mentioned, the three-act structure is the three trimesters, which would be a structure that your character, very pregnancy-focused, would be thinking about. That would be the form of the way she would be thinking about her own life is also the form of the novel, which I think is really smart. When you interviewed Kate Zambrino about writing as a mother under capitalism, you asked her this question. How do you get yourself to that space that you need to go to to do this higher level thinking that you need to write? And she said, Roland Barthes speaks about desk writing versus bed writing. Desk writing is formal thinking and bed writing is dreamy. I have not been able to sit up at a desk to write since I had the baby. I exist so much in a notebook space, making lists, making notes. It made me wonder if there were other ways, either pregnancy itself and early motherhood or the million craft books you read, um, other ways that that has changed your process going forward. Are there other things that you find you're doing differently now that you you're going to hold on to even when the circumstances change? Mm, that's such a good question. One thing that I've done a lot of, especially since moving to Glasgow, I I got a full-time job and I was parenting alone for, you know, like the first time. So I didn't have a lot of creative space to sit down and formally work on stuff. And I do so much note sap writing now. Like I just like have, it's like one note and there's just so much snippets, like so many snippets in there. But whenever I have just like the thought, I'm like, okay, I need to like capture that, that. Like I really try hard not to lose those moments because I used to be like, oh, if I have that thought, like I can just kind of work on the idea and put it away later. But the way that like my life has been structured now, it's kind of like a revolving door of activities <laughs> and I won't remember it. Like I know that I won't, especially because when you get so busy as a parent, there's so much going on. For me, I just feel like I forget a lot. Like my short-term memory has really changed. So so that has changed. I'm definitely like a notes app person now. I wish I was like a notebook person though. Like I wish I could like hand write prose. I can like journal like really basic feelings. Like I had a bad day today, but I can't like get the prosy part into right. like handwriting and I don't know why that is I used to be that way and I wonder if that's like because our relationship with technology but yeah I don't know it's curious but I think the notes app space is probably a kindred space to the notebook space that Kate Sembrina is talking about mm -hmm. well before we talk about the book directly are there any of those craft books that you would particularly put forth for others? Um, since you read so many books about structure and plotting, are there one or two that you would, you would say th these are pretty great? Yeah. The one that I will recommend that I really liked was um, it's called the plot whisperer. And it's so funny because it's a cheesy book. It's like a really cheesy book and it goes into like the hero's journey. But like, for me, I like didn't have an MFA. I 
didn't have like that formal understanding of like these parts of the story and that broke it down really well for me in terms of like how I create a plot and it had a lot of really useful um like sheets and stuff like that like worksheets and that sort of thing and I kind of laugh at it too because I literally found it at Goodwill for like a dollar and I just bought it and I had it for like two years then I looked at it and I was like you know I'm just gonna read this and try it and I really liked it it was really useful um the other one that I would really recommend is the Modern Library Writers Workshop, and that's by Stephen Koch. And I don't know why that one just was really useful in terms of thinking about voice and style and putting things towards that I would not have otherwise thought of as well. So I liked those two. Well, thinking of writing as a mother under capitalism, our protagonist, Dee Dee, isn't a mother. In fact, she's lost five pregnancies and she's desperate to become a mother but she's suffering under conditions that they're not the same as postpartum brain fog and exhaustion but they're nevertheless conditions that are huge obstacles to her living a full life most notably poverty and a crushing and punishing job at a chicken processing plant in a way just as you hoped a double timeline three-act structure would deliver you from brain fog, Didi hopes having a baby will deliver her from the inhuman grind of her work, that it will set things right with her mother, and it will put her relationship with her boyfriend on more solid footing. That being delivered not from motherhood but into it would be a sort of salvation for Didi. And I was hoping we could hear the opening passage of the book of Dee Dee going to work, both to give us a sense of her daily life, but also to get a sense of the language of the book. And then as a preface to us, uh, starting to discuss what the book is about. The first trimester. The factory is a fertile body, each breast a beginning. I make geometry of the meat and that keeps my mind in line calming, comforting tenders and perfect fingers, my pneumatic scissors make sense of the mess. It's 3.50 a.m. when I arrive on the floor in my sexless scrub top, and number five is pissed. I slip on my disposable arm wraps, then tie my plastic apron behind my back. Everything that drops into our section is mostly peach with pale yellow lumps of fat. Thank God there is no blood. When I'm not at work, I remember moving the length of my fingers over each smooth breast, feeling for the catch of bone or a string of tendon against my latex glove. Number five catches me missing a breast and shouts. I look up, then cut faster to catch up. Trembling flesh flops and tumbles down a conveyor belt at 140 birds or more a minute, and I cut, cut, throw the pieces into wide emerald vats to be sorted. It's hard to focus, and sanitizer fogs my eye protection. This morning, the sky was July clear, and as I walked through the glass doors glittering with dawn light, I knew something was different. Couldn't stop squeezing the skin of my stomach. In the locker room, I pressed my hands deep into my hips, searching for the nubs of my pelvis through the surrounding paunch of my sore, spongy fat. During first break, I swallow back the nausea warming up my throat. I step outside and walk past the rows of parked cars, the sun barely rising and the constellation fading out in the north. Mama calls it the Northern Cross. 
God is watching over us, she would say. But when I moved out and got the internet, I looked it up. It's not a cross, but a swan in flight. The air outside is normally swollen with blood and animal waste, but today it smells earthy, like wild grass and fresh milk. The mild country across the highway is peppered with paste-colored double-wides, old barns, twined bundles of hay, our factory nestled neatly between that and a few acres of chicken farms, if you can call them that. Oblong warehouse-sized huts with thousands of clucking broilers breathing in their shit. We're the kill station, the biggest poultry supplier to Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. When first break is over, workers sort into their sections like marbles rolling toward one uneven end. Number three shows up next to me. Good morning, number four. I nod and cover my nose with my paper mask. My hunger prods and pressure in the muscle of my jaw below my tongue makes me salivate. A bloat sits below my belly button, achy and full. I try to remember the last time I bled. Three weeks, maybe. It's never been regular. Sometimes it takes months, but always I'm thinking, she's here again, inside me. An alarm rings and the assembly line clunks on, first from the adjacent warehouse rooms, then ours. Air hisses through the hose of my scissors, and I ready the blades by shaking them open and shut a few times. For the rest of the day, I cut and cut and cut. Been listening to Elle Nash read from her latest book, Deliver Me. So I'm torn about whether to begin by talking about the content of what you just read or the way it is written, but I wanted to at least spend a moment with the horror of chicken processing itself. When I used to host a health show, these were the sort of things we would parse out on the show. Many of the labels like cage-free or free-range or pasture-raised, I think most people would be shocked to discover the conditions and methods that are allowed to occur under many of these labels to discover how much the important true significance of the words in the real world often have little to do with the actual practices going on and how the labels are not meant really to help consumers as much as they are to give cover for the producers. I'll just mention this. It's not really related to our conversation, but there are places like the Cornucopia Institute that put out scorecards where you can at least filter out the worst offenders. But a lot of these debates are really complex and counterintuitive. Like, for instance, beef having the largest carbon footprint. And yet, if we're looking at humane treatment, it's much easier actually to find cruelty-free beef than it is to find humanely raised egg-laying chickens where most people think that eggs are particularly good because you aren't killing anything. They're not realizing that 50% of the chicks are killed immediately because they're male and they're often ground down and macerated while they're still alive. Uh, not mm -hmm. to mention mil millions of other cruel but common practices that make the life of most egg-laying chickens far from one that gives it any resemblance to a chicken life during its life. In this book, Dee Dee works at a chicken processing plant where she processes 140 birds per minute. And the workers aren't allowed to keep watches or phones with them. So there's this massive digital death counter and it becomes a sort of de facto clock. So the major clock of the book is, is pregnancy, but there's this other work clock 
that isn't time, but how many birds you've killed. So if you manage 140 birds per minute, you know that you're at break time when the counter reaches 26,000 and that the first shift is over when you reach 50,000. And I guess I was hoping maybe you could talk about why you wanted this to be one of the significant settings of the book, what the setting affords you as you tell this story and perhaps why you'd want to pair this work environment with Didi's other concerns as an aspiring mother. Something about that world really drew me to it. Like I've always been pretty passionate about being against large agricultural farm work um, ever since I was like a teenager, you know, like I had read like Eric Schlosser's book and that inspired me to like be vegetarian. He, some of it was like in Colorado Springs where, where I grew up. There was a lot of like the meatpacking industry um, all along the front range in Colorado. And so I was really intimately familiar with that. Where I went to university, there's um, one town over was where the major meatpacking plants were. So like on Thursdays, you knew that they always like burned the vats of blood because the whole entire region would smell like blood and like farm shit and all of this stuff for like a couple of days, you know, yeah. so you kind of like get used to that, the rhythm of that world. But something about chickens and the way that they are consistently like breeding eggs maybe is one of those things that uniquely drew me to it like once I started researching more about how chicken processing plants work like for example the fact that many of the chickens that they raise they're not old enough to lay eggs by the time they're slaughtered for when they are made for meat the juxtaposition between that and like what I was wanting for Dee, Dee just seemed too perfect like the pairing seemed like I needed to have that I think about it two ways, right? Like societally, when when a person goes through like a miscarriage, for example, especially if the miscarriage is like before the 12 week mark is I think that's when they usually say like, that's when you can tell people like it's safe to tell them about a pregnancy. I just feel like it's not necessarily treated with like the kind of um, like sympathy that you should have with it and it's easy for a person to like feel dismissed in their experience or not know how common it is like I did not know like like you know that it happened to me once and I did not know how common it was for that experience to happen until I actually had to start reaching out and like talking to people you know and it and people were dismissive of it also in my experience and so it was like through that where I was like okay so we have this end of it and then on the other end we have the way that we view meat as a product like when you do look at it in the supermarket especially just chicken in particular is a special kind because like it's it's white meat there's no blood it's not like with beef where it's like bleeding it's very beige so it feels like a product it feels like not an animal when you're purchasing it with how different it looks to when it's alive and so i think just on both of those ends the way that we just like move through society and don't think about death or are very protected from, we live in a very sterile world when it comes to those kinds of deaths. That was sort of something I was just thinking about like all of the time, you know, and when I was working on this novel. And, you know, part of that might also be because like once I did have my baby, I thought about death so much. Mm. And that's actually common too. I know mm -hmm. a lot of new like mothers who say that, that they're just like, I think about death so much. And I'm like, yeah, like, 
I did not know that was a thing, you know, like I was like, mom, why didn't you never tell me that you like have this experience? Um, and so maybe that was also a result of it too, where I'm just like really contemplating it on like a deeper level now. Well, let's stay with this excerpt another minute and talk about the language of it from the get go with the opening line. The factory is a fertile body, each breast beginning and the following one. I make geometry of the meat, and that keeps my mind in line. Calming, comforting tenders, and perfect fingers, my pneumatic scissors make sense of the mess. It's super obvious that you attend to the sentence and the music and imagery of language. And I know that prior to your newfound interest in plot structure, your focus was very much formed through a lineage to the language-centric philosophy of Gordon Lish, where when you interviewed Lish and asked him if philosophy was as important as sound in fiction, he answered, between idea and sound, if you were to put a gun to my head, I'd take the bullet for the acoustic and every last one of its relations in the domain of speech. And I suspect you might also with articles you've written like what Joy Williams and Dennis Johnson can teach us about the art of first sentences, both very acoustical writers, I'd say. And your connection to Lish is through Tom Spanbauer, who long ago was one of Lish's students and who might not be a name most people in the world immediately recognize, but who was for the longest time the biggest figure of writing and writing pedagogy here in Portland, Oregon, with his dangerous writing workshops, which held a big space in the imaginary of the Portland writing community. And a decade ago, you came to Portland to study under him in the Dangerous Writers group, and he pushed the story you were working on into a book-length project, your debut novel. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about his influence, what dangerous writing is for him and for you and also any anecdotes you might have around working with him it makes my like heart swell thinking about his workshop so much because it was it was one of like the first actual like writing workshops that I did attend like I was like new I did not know that like literary magazines were a thing I did not know that independent presses you know existed it was like a whole new world that opened up to me when I went to his workshop and I think the thing that really changed my world with his workshop was that I came into writing through science fiction and wanting to do work like Philip K. Dick and Octavia Butler and that kind of thing right but what was hard for me was I did not know, I, I had a journalistic background and I did not know how to connect with what I was writing about. That's like on an emotional level. Like I just kept thinking in my mind, I was like, I only know how to do journalism. I only know how to like tell the truth of things. You know, I don't know how to lie. And that was what was so revolutionary about working with Tom is that he has that quote that's like, I think it's from Lish where he says, fiction is the lie that tells the truth truer. And it was through his practice of dangerous writing where he was like, the very first assignment we got was think about a moment where after you're different. And it was about taking these like the sore spots, the places we're afraid to look at in our lives 
and examining them from all these different facets. And so one thing that I learned from dangerous writing was that when you've got that sore spot, you you already have like atmosphere and you have setting and you have motivation and you have your characters and you have all of this stuff already that's like at the outset that you can connect to. And through that and through exploring it, then you can create the atmosphere that you're looking for, that you're trying to express. And that's where you can start to manipulate. Like that's where I started. I don't know. It was revolutionary for me thinking about that, where I was like, oh, I don't like actually have to world build like all this is already in me. And that's sort of the thing that like we all like I think love about fiction anyway is not necessarily always the world building, but it's the the themes of like human connection and closeness, you know, even through all the best sci fi, all you know what I mean? Not that world building is like bad. I love good sci fi. It's just that I was learning for myself like I didn't have to try to push myself too far too hard at first I had to connect at that outset and so I think that's part of what it was for me and I also really liked and admired that idea of going into like the places that scared you most you know that idea of um, bringing the reader to their knees that all felt really powerful to me because that is what I go to reading for like that's what feels the best in some ways since that workshop, just on a personal level, that felt unrelated at the time, I've deepened my own like spiritual practice, um, like with ritual and magic, but meditation and Buddhism too, in terms of thinking about like my relationship to suffering and what that looks like. And in a lot of ways, my relationship to writing has deepened my understanding of my relationship to suffering, my relationship to character building and how I think about how to connect with a character that isn't me or has a completely different life experience or a character that is like not sympathetic, a character that people don't like. I'm able to understand like humanity and people and the psychology of those things more because I can look at suffering, which is something that we all experience as like this universal thing, you know, like they kind of inter have intertwined in a way for me. And I think it's, it's partly due to that idea of like going to those places that scare you and like having that sympathy for the areas of our life where we need to be redeemed that everybody has, you know, that is taught in dangerous writing. Hopefully that makes sense. Is that a complete sentence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, okay. I, I love that notion of thinking about a moment where you're different after, which I think you're right. I think the world building sort of was already inherent in that moment. If you're thinking of that moment, you don't need the exposition because it's already there in the moment. But before we talk more about dangerousness and writing, you, you just mentioned ritual and magic. And it just made me wonder if your spiritual practice and or ritual and magic interfaces with your writing practice. Is it something you do that sort of more intangibly gets carried into your writing or is there a way it actually intersects like explicitly with your writing where you might be doing ritual or magic as part of composition or as part of something you're doing with whatever book you're working on? I guess it's like a little bit of both. I, I almost feel like this is like the immature baby me, like a perspective of immature baby me now, but for a while I was like, oh, like, you know, spelling is like manifesting a thing, right? It's like, you're actually conjuring like an idea, like you're putting that in someone else's mind, which is like really cool. But I almost like, I'm looking at it a little bit more differently now where 
So I've got these short stories and there's like these different characters in these short stories and sometimes they're interlinked and sometimes they're not. And I do have people ask me sometimes like, who is this? Is this a person? Is this based on anyone or like what have you? And I kind of had this realization where I was like, well, it's not like a person in my life, but there are like representations of particular feelings and like experiences that I've kind of crammed into like a particular almost entity in some ways and I was kind of thinking like is that like a tulpa is this character like kind of living and breathing through all these like different stories Mm. you know like this representation of these of this this pain that like I've experienced that I've had to examine in like all these different ways like I've put them to life and like looked at them through many facets and you know I haven't thought about those kinds of things since I've completed the stories and like put the book down, like they've gone out into the world, like I've released them. And that is kind of like somewhat a magical process in a way, like on its very basics, they, you know, everyone does magic or whatever different, but it's like this idea that if you create like a sigil or whatever, you charge it and then release it and you don't think about it anymore. That's kind of like what I feel like I do maybe with a short story or with a novel, Mm. like when animals eat each other, like I have honestly (laughs) like not thought about, whatever experiences like were the the basis for that that book in so long you know I think that Tom once wrote in an article on I think it was nailed that maybe it's this idea of like you're psychologically exhausting like whatever pain it is that you're examining you know and I don't know if that's always true right because I think it can be different for everybody but I've often thought about that in some in some ways is that maybe that maybe that's part of that process like people tend to say like is it therapy or not well I don't know you know maybe I don't care if it's therapy but it's like it's it's like asking that question like well why why do you feel driven to do it you know well let me read some of the different ways you framed Spambauer's approach, uh, some of which you've already said. I'll just be reiterating. In your bio, you say that you follow his teaching philosophy that good writing has a feel to it and that it's imperative to bring the reader to their knees. But you've also written what Spambauer meant by dangerous writing was to explore the work that personally scares or embarrasses the author to make it dangerous is to express those fears honestly through art. And in a podcast, you said, Spambauer's approach is to think about one of the most painful things in your life, and that becomes the seed. You can examine it from so many facets. When you look at one of those moments, you have everything you need to tell a story, to create a fiction. And much like your connection to Lish having come through his former student, Spanbauer. You also came to Spanbauer, at least in part through one of his students or former students, the Fight Club author, Chuck Palahniuk. And when you, when you interviewed Chuck and asked him about Spanbauer's influence, especially given that he had dedicated his craft essay book, Consider This, to Spanbauer, He said that before Spanbauer, his own writing was like a lousy Stephen King copy and that Tom told him that the world already had a Stephen King and showed him how to sort of reverse engineer storytelling so that he was creating stories from his own style and from his own voice, building a deep framework from something more deeply connected to his own particular experience of the world. 
and in your intro to that interview, you say, the problem with being vulnerable as a writer is there's a paradoxical desire for the work to be liked, whether that means validation through the publishing process or being accepted by some sort of readership, while simultaneously shutting out self-critique or worry about whether others will accept the work. I once talked to a writer friend who discussed the need to, quote-unquote, lean into your disaster, disaster being the raw, distinguished pain of one's words, which makes a writer's work unique, wild, and telling. Often in Spambauer's workshop, this practice started with an assignment about the thing you're most afraid to tell. The idea was you might exhaust all of the emotional or psychic pain of a moment through writing, make the pain totally vulnerable, and come to a new place on the other side changed. I guess I wondered what you consider the edge with Deliver Me, the place of fear for you of speaking if you if you feel like talking if you feel like going there i know this might be too personal a question but i'm i'm curious about the edge of vulnerability that becomes the energy of this book if if there is one that you can speak to and if not i'm also curious either way about this tension that you paint between true disclosure and also the awareness of wanting the book to be loved or liked and and brought into the world and embraced, which are which feels like a legitimate tension if you're writing in this way of um, of vulnerability. Yeah. Oh, that's so hard because one reason that I love fiction is that I can like hide all my feelings in it. I think like Alyssa Gabbard made this really funny tweet a while back that was like, fiction is great because you can have a feeling and then you can be like, it's not me that has that feeling. That guy has it. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, like it's, I've never felt something so deeply true. There is a lot there. I think there are a lot of edges in that book for me. And like one that I can speak to definitely is for a while, like in my mid to late 20s, I had surprisingly, like I wanted to have a baby so bad. And I'd never felt that way before in my life. And that was like to the point that I was in like a yoga teacher training class and I had met this other girl who also was kind of in the same boat. And we were both like, oh, we're coming up like on our 30s and we feel so burnt out with our jobs and like wouldn't be like wouldn't like being a stay at home mom be so wonderful, which is kind of to me, it's kind of funny and naive that I thought that at the time that (laughs) having like a newborn and and being like a mom 24 seven would somehow be easier, (laughs) which is funny. Um, it's a labor of love, but there was a girl in our class who did get pregnant and she was like a nanny. And so she got to like have her baby and still have this, you know, and have her job. And she had like this kind of dream life. And I was surprised. I was envious. I was like, so envious that like, I didn't want to like talk to her anymore, you know? Um, and I was surprised by like those kinds of feelings at the time. So I think exploring that was like an edge of vulnerability for me. And then I think also just examining like the psychology of violence. Like I didn't know. I think I didn't know when writing it how people were going to necessarily take it because people I think do so often associate my work with autofiction. 
you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough, right? Like I do love, I love having the veil of fiction because even if I write something that seems similar to something I've experienced, I'm also like able to look at that and say like, well, that's not really me. You know, like I've kind of externalized it from myself and I'm like twisting it into all these like different patterns now. And it's very satisfying to like, look at that, you know, to be like, look at this carving I've made of my pain. It's not me anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Um, I really like, I really, I really like that. But it is a fine balance because in order to get the work done, you have to not worry about like the thoughts of others to keep them from like crippling you. But then to feel motivated to put it out in the world, which is also like just an equally difficult process, like querying, publishing, the waiting game, you know, facing the rejected and all of that. You have to want the validation bad enough to like get through that too. So you almost have to like play tricks on yourself, you know, or it's kind of like I'm looking at one side of like a mirror and then I'm looking at the other side or something like that, you know, like it's a double-sided mirror or something in terms of that. But yeah, I don't know. It is a it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. <laughs> well, I know sometimes you teach a class called textures and another self-guided class called knife party about how to be a better self-editor where you say learn how and when to cut, how to tighten work at a sentence level and root out laziness in your creative work. And I wondered if those were extensions of what we've been talking about, about this Lycian school. But I'm also interested in how you teach or how does one learn when to cut and how to cut? I would say that it is probably out of that that realm, like the Lycian realm. Like when working with Tom, for example, one thing that we did every two weeks is like, we would just like read the work aloud. And that was actually like, he did not do like line edits in documents or, or any, or, you know, like on word or track changes or anything like that. A lot of our work was simply reading the work aloud and like finding like where it did not work. And so when you do that enough, you kind of start to build an idea of like how smooth something is and where something's unnecessary. And the two places are like, is it hard to say? Like if you've, you know, ever tried to read over a sentence and you're just like, I'm skipping, you know, I'm I'm getting clunky or something like that. That's when you know, I think that you need to edit. And then the other place is like, you feel yourself getting bored of like your own work that you're reading. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, if you're reading your own stuff and you're like, I like, this is a slog, that to me is a big sign. Those are places you need to like tighten and edit. There's a lot you could do without, because if you're bored, anybody else experiencing that I think is likely to be bored as well because it's your work and you're the most interested in it. So that would be like a bad sign. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible yeah. sign. But that part of it is that it's, um it's that that's part of like developing the intuition for it. Right. Where it's intuition is a skill set. It's really just about, being able to turn down any other outside noise and like listening to like the little internal meter inside yourself. And that that gets better and stronger over time, the more that you can tune out that noise, you know, just with, with everything in general, but with writing in particular, you get better by reading a ton of other people's work that you are not familiar with, because then you learn your own taste 
because editing really is about your own taste. It's not necessarily like what one teacher says, you know, like one thing I do love about some of Lish's students, for example, is like their first novels with him are already, are always like 120 pages. And then the second book is like 400 pages. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's always like that where it's like the student leaves and then they actually learn for themselves what voice they prefer yeah. over what their mentor is teaching them. And so you learn through like that, through like when you read other people's work and you're editing like a magazine for someone else or that's or or in a workshop. I do think you learn very quickly that you're like, okay, I definitely don't like, for example, when a sentence starts with an ing verb, you know, and then drops me into the action. And you have to just stop and think like, besides not liking it, why don't I like this? And can I verbalize that to this person, you know, in my workshop and say why I don't like it? That helps you because the more that you do it, the quicker it comes to you. And then you can kind of do that without thinking when you're looking objectively at your own work, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. One thing that I want to speak to with Tom, I think one thing that he fostered in people was like with Chuck, remember when you were talking about like Chuck Palahniuk and like how he was just like how you reverse engineer something. He does do such a good job of teaching the writer to learn how to like say something in their own voice specifically because like we use shortcuts so much that's what like the cliche is like the cliche is just the scaffolding our brain is creating for that moment so we don't have to like delve deeper but he has this concept called the burnt tongue and so that is the process of like saying what you want to say but like in your own unique voice right like everyone like feels a heartbreak like we know what that feels like but there's only one way that you experience that you can use it by like burning the cliche itself, right? To like express it like in your own way. And that was something that was really valuable to me in terms of like reverse engineering, right? Like the story and like thinking about it. And also like, there's a lot of great fears that I have from some of my writing students who say things like, oh, well, I'm writing a story about this, but I saw so-and-so just put out a book like this, you know, and now I'm afraid to write my story. And it's just a bit like, like everything that we could conceptualize has already been conceptualized. That's not, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of that. Right. That's like, you know, well, the cliche exists for a reason. Like it's a universal experience. Like pain is universal or whatever the experience is, but there's only like one way that you can say it. And he's always been that he's always kind of been that proponent too of like, you know, there's no, like, there's no boring story because what makes it interesting is like the way that you tell it, you know, so that was something really valuable that I wanted to touch on. Well, one way you've contrasted Lish and Spambauer's by saying Lish says to write the thing you were scared most about, the most heartbreaking thing, and that Spambauer took that and said, see how close to the body can we get with that heartbreak and with that fear. And I wanted to spend some time with the body and the ways you take things that society is trying to hold apart and separate from each other, and you bring them close, at least in my theory. This is my proposed theory. But um, the first thing you read began with, the factory is a fertile body, each breast a beginning. And it obviously evokes the language of birth and reproduction. But to describe something that is actually about death and the physical dismantling of chicken corpses. And similarly, as Didi is cutting apart these breasts, she's thinking of her early pregnancy at the same time. 
and the giant digital death counter is echoed in the book by the billboard above the hospital that counts every baby that's born since the hospital was built in a state that is a very anti-abortion state. And it begins even with your bipolar set of epigraphs, because we have the one from Psalms. O Lord, deliver me from evil men. Preserve me from the violent. And the other from Clarice Lispector's The Passion of G.H., which I think is a quasi-mystical text, and yet one much more inescapably tied to the body and to the impure, which goes, The roach and I aspire to a peace that cannot be ours. It's a peace beyond the size and destiny of the roach and of me. And it feels like every gesture of generation and birth in Deliver Me is mirrored with something related to death and degeneration. Um, and perhaps this is in contrast to Dee Dee's mother's fervent evangelical life, which at least for me feels more linear, like a moving away from darkness toward the light. She belongs to a Pentecostal church with faith healing and speaking in tongues as part of worship, and she prohibits Dee Dee from watching TV Dee Dee's failure to become a mother has her own mother fawning over Dee Dee's pregnant best friend and nemesis, Sloan. But I'm curious why you chose this specific strain of Christianity, a church that also embraces the so-called prosperity gospel where sin results in poverty. It feels like this is a choice. Um, because I feel like the mechanics or the ethos of the book, which I feel like is bringing the roach and the psalms together, the cut-up breast and the life-giving breast together, feels like a stark contrast to the world in which the characters are living, which feels like a world where the church is trying to push them as far apart as possible. Evangelical Christianity, and this, this particular flavor has always been fascinating to me. My experience of like the, them as a culture is that it is very clean, almost like very crisp corners, right? Laundry is like always clean. Hair is always done right. These are things that are seen as values that get you like closer to godliness in a way. But at the same time, I love studying Christianity because in my mind, it will never not be like a death cult. And so just its own juxtaposition, like its own existence and, and that juxtaposition, um, I don't know, like I've just always been like fascinated by it for some reason, you know, it just seemed like it was necessary. And part of it is also because it is just true to that world. Like I lived in Northwest Arkansas, which is, you know, 40 minutes from Missouri, you know, I think it's like an hour from Joplin. So being in and of that world is... I just was like, this is accurate to the people. And if there is a woman who is struggling in her life and like trying to find independence, it's likely going to be because she is struggling to get away from the church. And like the thing about Christianity, at least in the United States, is that like it is in and of everything in so many ways, like culturally. I think I would even say that like for communities that may feel that they're secular, like they may not even actually be like there may be 
like echoes of like Puritan culture that still exist, right? Like Mm -hmm. in, in secular environments that we're not fully aware of. And so I did want to examine that. And I think that my, my work often like comes back to that. And I don't know why, like, it is so funny. Like I think about this often in this next, in the next two like manuscripts that I'm working on, both of them mentioned Jesus in like the first three pages. And I'm like, why am I consistently thinking about this? You know, maybe it is because for me, like, just as a person, I'm constantly trying to think like, how can I remove the structures of that thinking out of my own mind and like find that liberation, you know? Well, you also grew up in one of the most Christian cities in the United States too, right? Like, I don't know how many evangelical organizations and churches exist in Colorado Springs, but it's a lot. 600. <laughs> 600. <laughs> Probably more now. <laughs> I'm like, I yeah. know it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. And that's the home of um, focus on the family. Yeah. Too. So like growing up, I think his name's like Lou James Dobson or whomever it is. Um, who was like on the news all the time. Or we had like junior achievement and focus on the family programs, like in the elementary and middle schools. Like that was just normal, you know? I know you attended a church as part of your research, and I don't think it's the same type of church that is the predominant church in Colorado Springs. Perhaps it is, but I would love to hear about your experience, what it was like attending the services. It's also obvious you knew a lot about this community because as Sloan, Dee's friend or frenemy, says at one point, criticizing the church, she says that oneness doctrine is the worst thing to happen to Christianity ever. And that was, I didn't know what oneness doctrine was. Like, I know that this got very, you got very specific to a specific Christian community. Talk to us about the, the very the specifics of this church. Um, and also the experience of going there as a temporary congregant and how interfacing with the people in it were was like so i went to a united pentecostal church and they are the faith healing type so they believe in like glossolalia and like the laying of hands and i think a big thing that they believe on that they believe in is like doing good works and so I was a little bit like scared at first. It's a very, very small church. Um, it was like the closest one to me, like where I lived. And in rural Arkansas, I mean, it is a little bit like you don't know necessarily like what you're stepping into. It was probably like, you know, it's like maybe five, maybe, maybe 10 families like at most would go to this church. And it's not my first experience, like going into like a new organized religious environment. Like I was Muslim for a while. I went through the process of converting and was Muslim for like four-ish years, I think. And even like, even like converted from one sect to another sect as in my time, like in the Muslim community. So I'd, I'd been to different, like wildly different, um, types of congregations and like walked into that as like a new you know a stranger and not knowing what to expect so that part wasn't necessarily scary and in fact was kind of similar so when I showed up I'm like wearing like all black I'm wearing like trousers I have like facial piercings and that's definitely you know it's like oh you're not like from here because they're very conservative the women are not allowed to wear trousers you know they don't wear any makeup because that is about like 
you know, modesty and that sort of thing. But everyone's very kind or nice. And I would say that that is because like, they don't want to like scare people away. They want people to be part of the congregation because that's part of the works is bringing people in by living like this life that they feel is in line with the word of God. They believe that that is how they will attract people like to the religion. And, you know, for the most part too, living in Arkansas, that was largely my experience with any, anybody that was a part of like the apostolic Christian community that I came across. Like I worked with people who were Christian, um, went to, you know, went to church and did multiple like church activities every week. Like it was their lives. Like it was a lifestyle. And never once did they try to proselytize, you know, or change my mind about what my beliefs were, them knowing my beliefs. It really was more just like they made themselves available to be available to me as friends and like hung out with me. And like through that, it's like, you know, oh, hey, well, you know, like Thursday, if you're looking for community, like we have like an international soccer team as part of our church group, they kind of bring you in like kind of that, you know, that way and stuff. Were you on the soccer team? No, I was not on the soccer team. I was not on the <laughs> soccer team. But like, I've always been bad at team sports, just for the record. But going to the church, it's very gendered. Like the women generally are the ones that talk to me. The only, the only man that really talked to me was the preacher, you know, just like asking me about where I was from and, you know, you know, how I'd found them and all that stuff. And um, I would just kind of sit in the back and listen to him speak, listen to like a lot of sermons. I spent a lot of time also just watching sermons in general and doing deep biblical research and trying to understand like why does why does this sect think that this sect is wrong like why do they think you know why are they against like this idea of like a triune god you know um when when did like this sect break off from this one and like for what you know there's all these different reasons and interpretations that are so they seem so complicated to me but i mean i guess if you're passionate about something it makes sense just like with writing communities maybe yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i would just i would sit in the back and just listen and just experience it it can be overwhelming like it can be overwhelming sometimes like like listening to them and like the the sound of the organs or the sound of like the praying and stuff and like how loud it gets there's this weird communal pressure just from being in the experience of it that was um that was quite new to me because it is very different from going to the mosque on Fridays as a Muslim where you it's you do the prayer you know you do your prayers and like you learn the process and stuff but that's more it's more structured and you kind of know what to expect and then at this at the UPC church it was like you just have different groups that start like doing the glossolalia thing and then it's just a little it's a little more hectic it feels like the energy is like more frenetic mm -hmm. you know Oh, this sounds so interesting. Yeah. Well, I have a theory why this book is so unsettling. Um, even if we put aside the last 40 pages where I think it spins into full-on depraved madness. Um, and I want to hear your thoughts on my theory. Uh, because I think you do more than refuse to allow the spirit or soul or the aspirational self or our dreams, refusing to allow that aspect of us to escape the body and death. I feel like there are a million ways that you transgress borders or blur binaries or violate norms, uh, whether those be the binaries and norms of the church 
that all the characters are orbiting in different ways, or simply the norms of middle-class life, which is not the life the characters are living, but which I think a lot of the characters are dreaming of. So there's a way in which the norms of sort of middle-class life seem to be aspirationally in the book for the characters, even though they're not materially living anything like it. For instance, some of these transgressions um, that come to mind are Dee Dee's boyfriend is called Daddy, which definitely gives us a weird taboo-like aura. And Dee Dee's mom, who dotes over Dee Dee's best friend and nemesis Sloane when Sloane successfully gets pregnant, the way she sort of loves Sloane, the mom, almost has an erotic charge to me. And most of the characters are bisexual and only default to heterosexual relations due to the pressures upon them in society. Or in the case of Daddy, the trauma that he sublimates into a sexual kink where he uses insects that allow him to get aroused when having sex with women. The, the way insects are employed by daddy during sex with DD also it's crossing a species barrier, which also in a way evokes death while they're having sex as the, really the only other time we would think of insects crawling over us is when we're a corpse. Um, and also the way daddy treats these exotic insects that he collects when they're alive, they're, cared for like pets and when they're dead they're lovingly preserved and displayed unlike the one-eyed stray cat in the book or the innumerable chickens which are really treated like things they're really treated like bugs for that matter unlike the bugs the bugs are treated in an inverted way this inversion between animals and insects which i think underscores the arbitrariness of what we love and what we think is disposable and I think of your call for submissions at Witchcraft Magazine also, which goes, Witchcraft Magazine craves darkness, hunger, and the beautiful brutal. Feed your shadows to the hole. And the hole is the place you submit your work at Witchcraft Magazine. But I also think it's a place where you can't separate out good from evil, where all boundaries are crossed, where, as Liz Spector said, the roach and I aspire to a peace that cannot be ours. Um, I guess I suspect there's a method to your madness that this is all by design, that every relationship in this book may seem familiar at first glance, but at any moment could, it feels like it could cross a boundary that would make it strange to us. Maybe it's even similar to the energy of the church, which, you know, it's a ritual, but it's an uncontained ritual. And everything from you know, the hints of like the, the incestual tone of like having a boyfriend named daddy and the, the um, crossing from heterosexuality to queerness, which isn't happening in the book, but always suggested like it could happen. Well, it is happening in the book, but it, it, and when it's not happening, it's suggesting that it, that it could happen at any moment. And I wondered how that, how does that strike you as a, as one of the possible like engines of, of what unsettles us as we read the book. I feel like that's a really good observation. <laughs> I like it a lot. 
like I came to Thomas Banbauer through Chuck Palahniuk, right? And this idea of like transgressive literature, um, not really knowing, you know, I discovered Chuck when I was a teenager in high school and like not knowing much about transgressive literature, I just sort of slowly learned more. I know that now I think people don't like to like use the term and that's partly because it's come to be associated with a kind of like shock literature where it's taboo for no reason or it's like just grotesque and violent for the sake of being that way I have always felt like if you are going to transgress like if you are going to like push up against boundaries I feel like there has to be good reason for it and part of that is maybe because we are trying to question these roles and like these guardrails and these boundaries that do exist in society in some ways, you know, like I do and intentionally did. I want to make the person experiencing this story like uncomfortable, but at the same time, like I'm wanting them to have a sense of like empathy for what Daisy is going through, you know, like I set out thinking about this person and like the impetus behind the story saying like, can I, like, I'm, I'm compelled enough to, like, go, like, on a ride with the story, like, myself, like, am I capable of bringing other people with me, and, like, how am I going to do that, you know, but, but I do want, but I, I think I do want people to feel uncomfortable, but not, like, unreasonably so, so, do you know, I think it's just because the nature of human existence is sometimes horrifying, and, I don't know, maybe I just like needed to exp- like expunge that for some reason, like examine it and like look at it and make sense of things, you know? It's interesting because, and I don't know if this was necessarily like intentional at the outset, but even with like that gray area of the the insects being like across species, it's even like, like I kind of wonder like in the kink world, like I have seen people like use it before, But it's like, does that even in the kink world cross a line for some people too into something that would then be like considered, I don't know, like bestiality, which would be then completely unethical. Like there's this weird line even there with it where I mean, and I don't know for sure, like where people stand on that. But I don't, yeah, I have often thought about that. But even with, um, with the characters, like with Daisy in particular, it's like she's pressing up against these boundaries. But part of the reason why some of this obsession starts to develop is that she doesn't even necessarily like have the language or the life experience to express what it is she's feeling or how to express it in in a certain way. And just because of her own like unique psychological makeup and like what, you know, like for her, the way that it ends up coming out is in this like really like unhealthy kind of boundary pushing sort of way that she's like I don't like for her it's like if expression is like a river it's like a river that keeps flowing for her it's like this path this path is starting to carve and then it just keeps carving deeper and deeper as you go into the story Mm -hmm. you know well staying with making people uncomfortable I I loved Brad Listy's response to the cross-species insect kink between Dee Dee and Daddy when you're on other people on his podcast, which was a real gross out for him. But I would like <laughs> to say, unlike him, despite myself finding this entirely unappealing in the abstract, 
and in the description of it, I th- I think you find a way to make it erotic, to place us within what turns the characters on, and from there make something that is extremely unsexy, sexy. When you interviewed Sarah Gerard at BOM, you asked her about writing sex, what the most cringeworthy scenes of sex writing she had ever encountered were, and what makes her feel successful at writing a good sex scene. I wanted to ask you the same. Talk, talk to us about your considerations around sex writing, whether it has insects or not, just sex writing, mm-hmm. which is so fraught mm-hmm. and, and so easily mocked. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, right? I have like, I have a theory about this. And part of it is because I feel like on a biological level, I feel like humans forget like what good sex feels like faster than bad sex. So that way they keep having it. (laughs) You know, they're like, oh, I've forgotten how good that feels. I'm going to go try to find that again or something, you know, whereas like bad sex is probably more memorable because you definitely like don't want to go through that again or seek it out. But I guess there's a couple things like I do always try to use like those dangerous writing principles of going on the body. Like that's something I think that comes from list two, but what, but Tom would say like, go OTB, like go on the body. And that's always like, describe a feeling from really what it feels like internally. You know, it's like saying, instead of like, just as like a basic example, I feel scared. It's more like, well, what's going on inside the body? Like physiologically when fear is happening, you know, it's more than like a, heart beating fast or something there's a lot more that's going on there and it's like diving as deeply into those five senses as you can and then seeing where that takes you and I think even like from those five senses you can develop into like through into like the sixth sense which is like that the the psyche like what's going on in the mind or like the the consciousness of everything too that can make it a lot more rich um so that's one thing Another thing is, I guess, like with the insects or just maybe sex writing in general, in terms of making it kind of interesting and unique, is I love the use of juxtaposition. I've been finding in sex writing, like, you know, I was like, can I sexualize like an armpit? Like, that's not something people generally may may sexualize. Some people would, though. I mean, that's kind of like what I love about sex is that like, if something exists, people probably, you know, are are like into it. And so I would just want to see, like, can I do that? Can I have a character that's, like, interested, like, in a concave, you know, of, like, another person's armpit, like, and what that represents, which it does. It represents, like, reverence or, like, devotion, or maybe they're just, like, a pervert, you know, maybe they're just obsessed. And those things are interesting to me. Like, they make a person or character, like, unique. I just read Body Work by Melissa Phoebos, and there's a really great chapter in there that I took a bunch of notes on about sex writing um and she she kind of came to it too of saying like part of it is about challenging what we have been programmed to like think about sex as and a lot of that is like in terms of like what the heteronormative experience is and like pushing past it right I was like oh man like maybe that's also what I think makes like sex scenes really good like for example I think people tend to criticize using, like, porny words, you know, um, a lot, which, like, yeah, like, it can feel, like, clunky and not very literary, but Phoebos puts an example 
forward of Eileen Miles and a section from one of Eileen Miles' works that uses all of those words yet has so much richness to it and so much consideration for these body parts that are, I don't know, um, it's like it's hard for me to put words to it, but that make it so much more rich, you know? Mm -hmm. It's about like breaking, breaking like those rules of like what the heteronormative experience is like, like pushing past it. And I do say, like, if you are interested in writing sex, like, read that book because she's got, like, a writing exercise in there that is, like, really good that I want to try for myself that seems um, seems crazy where it's, like, summarize. So, so this is nonfiction, but it's, like, summarize your the experience of your sex life in, like, five sentences <sighs> and then do it again. But, like, don't refer back to any of the last five sentences. And then, like, do it again, like, a third time. And, like, keep going. Like, keep diving until, like, you've got nothing left. And then when you're there, then do it, like, one more time. And it's, like, challenging yourself to, like, go into, like, those deeper places that you wouldn't normally dive into. And I think that's, like, a big part of it, of sex writing, too, is, like, diving deeper than the shortcuts were primed for reaching towards. I think that's how, I think that's why she was explaining, like, we're challenging, like, what we're programmed to think of as, like, as sexual and like trying to like dive beneath that. And I think that's always like what makes like a sex scene really good is when you're able to like pull that out of an experience. Cause then that expands, that expands an experience for like a reader in a way, you know, that's what I love about fiction is like, it can be expansive. I liked that discussion you had with Sarah bomb about this very thing about the clumsiness in English of words like cock or boobs. And I, and I appreciate that you you're, putting forth examples where you can make those work and make them work in a really uh, wonderful way, but also that you were making word banks of body parts. I'm assuming armpit was in there that of, <laughs> of body parts that people wouldn't normally associate with sexuality and then and making them sexual, which I think even this insect endeavor is an extreme example of that, like taking something that would be very far away from a normative sexual experience and, and, and going so deeply inside of a character that finds that erotic so that we, by extension, could see it as erotic. But Sarah wouldn't answer your question. I'm guessing you're not going to answer this question either, but Sarah wouldn't answer your question of any memorably terrible sex writing encounters are, are you willing to name names about any that you particularly love for the ways they've gone off the rails? Gosh, I'm trying to think, honestly, like of bad examples. I don't know if I have any per se. Like I can only think of like the great examples. I've said I've talked about this book so much in the last two years, but like Wetlands is one of like my favorite books by Charlotte Roche because that is all extremely sexual but also extremely gross for a lot of people and it's that it's just that particular particular use of juxtaposition that is I found to be so incredibly clever because she's actually just writing about like normal everyday things too that all humans experience but because there's so much sexuality imbued with it it like can give you an ick factor but I found that to be like fascinating mm -hmm. <laughs> and then always like Dennis Cooper I know I'm only giving you great examples so no, that's great like that's I love that yeah yeah well I I think Brad Listy was right that one way to frame this book is around the, the idealization of motherhood that Dee Dee's belief that motherhood will save her 
that it will give her love and something to love, that it will somehow restore her to herself is almost a, a religious belief because all the examples of motherhood around her are not inspiring examples and they wouldn't inspire this belief in her by example. The very thing that she sees as salvation as her form of deliverance is also oppressing her in its ideal form as much as the very real in the world things like poverty and her job are oppressing her. But also we know she lives in a climate and a region where her choices are limited. There is only one abortion clinic in the state. It's six hours away and she can't afford the time off work to go there and come back. And we learn of a woman addicted to drugs who is prosecuted for her miscarriage. And Sloan, her nemesis, is a cautionary tale herself. And then I even had the question, because at one point a strain of avian flu breaks out at the processing plant. I wondered if there was a relationship between her habitual miscarriages and her job. That's not a connection that the book makes, but both of these things are happening and even if there isn't a connection, the fact that the book opens with the factory is a fertile body, each breast is a beginning, and then she literally spends her day cutting breasts into pieces suggests it's sort of an existential ending for her. But thinking of the sea of misogyny that the characters are swimming in and the complete lack of support for mothers and how the book is, is dedicated to every woman who must endure the torture humanity has to offer. I wanted to have you read a passage of Daddy mansplaining about why it is really men who are disposable, not women. But before we do, in the spirit of women succeeding against the impossible odds, or in the spirit of the praying mantis who's chewing on Daddy's nipple with her mandibles in one scene, which, of course, we think that we also think of the fact that female praying mantises often kill their mates during sex. You have an essay called Writing Under Duress, How to Persevere When Your Job, Life, and Kids Are Also a Priority. And you've also written a guide into how to step back into writing when you've avoided the work. So I wondered if maybe before we hear the reading, if you had any thoughts about persevering in in the face of as a writer in the face of all of these other things demanding one's time or um coming back to writing if if you haven't been able to persevere and are now in a cycle of avoiding avoiding the work because of it for me for a really long time i think writing was the only place where i felt like totally free to be myself like if you go to work, then you have like work you and you have like the pressures of work and you have to be like productive and on top of your shit. And, you know, like there's a type of person that like you kind of have to project to be in that world, especially if it's like customer service facing or like corporate world, which is the same thing to me is like customer service facing in that way. You conform to those roles or for example like if you're a, if you're a mom like I mean I'm still myself like as a mom but there's also there's a lot that like I'm not going to 
share with my daughters. Like if things are different, you know, things are difficult or, you know what I mean? Like I have to be like the strongest, most calm version of myself for her to like model how best for her, like that she can learn how to like manage her emotions. And I have to be the person that sets really good boundaries. So that way she learns like how to set really good boundaries. And like, that's not stuff that like comes like natural, you know what I mean? Like there's all like that messy stuff, you know what I mean? And so a lot of that is like, I have persevered through the writing simply because that was like my cope. Like I was like, this is like where I go, you know? Yeah. Once things did get a little overwhelming and I stopped writing, I mean, I kind of lost my momentum for a bit because Best Buy had like ripped my hard drive out of my MacBook and then replaced it. And I lost like a bunch of writing. And so I felt so like dejected I felt so dejected right when it first happened that I was like, I don't even know if I want to write anymore, which is like insane to think about for me. But um, and then I got over it, of course, but I never got my mo- the same momentum back that I had with with how I was doing. I have to learn to look at it and have been learning to look at it as though it's almost like learning to run a marathon for people who do want to write every day, but they like aren't successful at it. You kind of have to build a momentum and then the momentum begins to like catch, you know, it's like if you roll like a ball, like down like a hill or something like that, like it starts off slow, but then it starts to pick up and you just have to, you have to like not beat yourself up when you fail and just like get up the next day and say like, okay, I'm going to try. And like, that's kind of like how you start to do that. Yeah. In terms of like facing into the avoidance, there's no easy answer. <laughs> you Come really on. do. Just I know, <laughs> I know. It really is just like the work of of because I think what I wrote in there too was I was I recognized I was like I am not writing because I'm afraid it's gonna just be bad, which is funny because it's just a first draft. No one else has to see it. Like I don't know why I'm finding that avoidance there, but it's there. And that's the only that's the only thing I can do is that like I have to look at it and say like, okay, I'm going to like write like two thousand words and it's fine if it's bad. Like you have to let it be bad. It's difficult, but there yeah, there's nothing easy about that. It's literally just like you have to get up and do it. <laughs> it's like the it's like the meme. Like I don't know if you I can't remember like what cartoon it's from, but it's just like open a book, how to write a novel. Step one, start write you know, start writing. Yeah. He's like got tears in his face. It's like the only way, the only way to do it is literally just to like face to face into it, you know. I guess with anything, like when I was running a lot, I would hate the beginning of running. And so I would always trick myself into it by just telling myself that the first five minutes always suck. And so like, that's kind of, I guess, how I get myself to do anything is just like gaslighting. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be fine. The first five minutes suck and then you'll be fine after that. You know what I mean? And then like, by the time like the five minutes has passed, I've kind of like forgotten about that. And maybe it still sucks, but like, at least I'm like in the work now, like I'm invested or I'm like, you know, running or whatever it is <laughs> well let's let's hear daddy's diatribe all right he picks up a glass with melting ice and shakes it at me i signal to get him a drink i sigh and get up from the couch which creaks from the release of my weight i take the glass gingerly between two fingers imagining myself as his housewife In my mind, I'm wearing a beautiful chintz dress, a gauzy linen apron with a delicate red line stitched along the border, my hair blonde and rolled into victory curls. 
The baby is asleep in her vintage Edwardian crib in the bedroom, a magnificent, darkly stained oak one that rocks gently with her movements. Daddy doesn't see it. He returns his attention to the show. The episode is about a killer who'd become infamous for the way he selected his victims, dark-haired, college-age women who looked like his mother, many lured to his car by gaining their sympathy for a fake injury. Don't all serial killers target women, I ask. I drop three fresh ice cubes into his glass. Not necessarily, Daddy says. There was the one who ate gay men. But you won't see any specials on that guy. Society doesn't care what happens to men. We're disposable. I walk back over to the couch and set his drink on the table, thinking about Mike's, the field of stinking feathers in the huts. It's people that are disposable, I say, sitting next to him. Nobody cares about me at all either, unless I'm pregnant. And even then, it's questionable. He puts his hand on my belly. It's warm. He makes circles with his palm. I breathe in deep and push my abdomen out as far as it will go while trying to keep the muscles relaxed. It's a tricky move, but I've begun to master it. People only care about tradition and breeding a new life, I say. My abdominal muscles tremble, but I try to act casual. Weddings, births, baptisms, people will be present then. But nobody cares about the after. They don't care about the marriage, about the children. I pause for a second, knowing if I say this, I'll get a lecture about it. They don't care about women. It's different with men, Daddy says. His voice grows louder. They work the most dangerous jobs, have the highest suicide rates. They're more often victims of violent crime. Men go to war, Daisy. Society doesn't see that as a problem. He takes his hand from my stomach, and suddenly a small sense of abandonment creeps in. Women go to war, too. It feels rebellious to disagree, even though I know I'll eventually cave. The most common cancer in the world is prostate cancer, he says, but you don't see those plastic bracelets around everyone's wrist. He's now so loud, I glance at the popcorn ceiling littered with water stains, wondering if Sloan is home. I get indignant, rubbing my sore hands together, acutely aware of my back that never stops pulling my shoulders taut, the bone-deep pain in my lower spine. I work at a meat processing plant, I say. I put my hands in the air, frustrated. It's dangerous there, too. That's a class issue, he says. I know that's something you don't quite understand. Men, especially men like me, are still more disposable than women in this world. Fuck you, I say. He wasn't going to win this game. I know I've suffered more, and somehow this granted me validation. I need that at the very least. He smiles sarcastically and then points at my stomach. You're more valuable, he says. Get fucking used to it. Sleep on the couch tonight, I say. I don't want you in my bed if you're going to treat me like this. Treat you like what? He laughs bitterly. You want me to treat you like a man? You'd better get used to higher standards. Sounds like you wish you were the one that was pregnant, I say. I massage the skin around my belly button and my chest relaxes. Something in his demeanor changes. Challenge him all you want, but question his masculinity, and it's over. It is absolutely unacceptable for you to say something like that, he says, as though I want to be some kind of victim who gets special treatment, as though I want to do or be something feminine. That is not me, and you know that. I have to be this way because it is my duty. It's my job to protect you from the harshness and violence and evil of the world, and I make great sacrifices for it. When he gets like this, all I can do is sit and let the wave pass. He doesn't listen. He doesn't converse. 
He talks at you as though you'll understand him, as though all he wants is to be understood. And the truth is, I do understand him more deeply than anyone. I've heard it all so much before, I can hardly care the way I used to, the way I did when we were younger, but the depth of that understanding is what keeps me tied. No one else will understand him like me, and really, it's my job to endure him, to love and care for him, to give him something good, because of all the sacrifices he's made. That's what a good woman does, a good wife, and I want to be his wife. Been listening to El Nash read from her latest book, Deliver Me. So, true crime is also something in the background at all times in this book because Daddy is watching these shows constantly with murdered women, of course, a central component of lots of them. And I know that Deliver Me is also partially inspired by a true crime that happened when you were living in Colorado. And I wondered what it was about that particular real life event that became a seed for the story of this book or one of the seeds for the story of this book? The biggest thing was just that this, this woman had essentially been like living a lie or at least like telling everyone around her that she was pregnant for like nine months and she wasn't. So when the crime actually happened, everyone was like, this is so shocking. I can't believe this happened. And so there was, I guess, this piece of me where I was like, how does that happen? Like, how does someone go through their life for like nine months holding the secret and like nobody in her life notices? Is that like a community problem? Mm -hmm. Is that like a relationship problem, like a marriage problem? Like, how does a marriage get that way? How does a community of people like not see that? If she was, which she definitely was, like, suffering from a lot of, like, mental health issues, like, why did she not get the help that she needed? Where was, like, the issues of access? And so, like, that was a big part of the story that was interesting to me. And it wasn't like I saw that and I was like, oh, I want to, like, write a book about it. It was more just like, I was just like, how how does that happen? Why does this happen? And why why did this person feel so compelled to do this, you know, to this degree and for that long? It was actually through that case, just because I was researching and wanted wanted to understand more, that I learned about the case of, like, Lisa Montgomery. It's, like, a similar crime that she had committed. And at the time when I started researching her case and writing this novel, she was um, in federal prison. She had been tried in 2005. And in January 2021, like, right before Trump left office, she was on death row. And then they were like, okay, well, it's her time. She was, like, the first woman in, like, 65 years on federal death row to, like, like actually be put to death. Mm. I don't know. It just seems so awful because the way that her trial was handled in 2005 was also really, like, rife with misogyny and stuff. If you, if you like, want to like look up the details of the case and stuff, like, you'll kind of see. But I don't know. I just – it's just so, like – sad like it's so sad and like harrowing to think that the lack of access to like mental health services and like a community just kind of letting these people like fall through the cracks can like lead to like these kinds of behaviors but that's you know and I mean it's that's kind of emblematic with any kind of like um mental illness that can lead to like violent crime and stuff too you know like it's devastating it's sad it makes me angry at the state of like the United States healthcare system a lot. Yeah. And you have a unique perspective on that now being in Scotland. 
Yeah, yeah. And like the further away I am from the United States healthcare system, like the like the angrier I get about it, like I feel like more radicalized like being here and like seeing it work mm. because it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me. Like from like the you know, from a human perspective, it's just like I see it working. Like they tell you all the time, like when you're there and you're like, we want single payer healthcare, like we want universal healthcare. And they're just like, oh, it'll never work. It never works. Like here's all the reasons like why it's terrible and like why it doesn't work for people. And I'm now that I'm outside of that, I'm just like, it was all lies. It does work. It works fine. Like sure, there's like some minor differences, but you know, and right. it's not, nothing's perfect, but you know, like it does, it does work. <laughs> Well, given that we've talked about your your self-directed knife party, your class on textures, and I know you have a whole bunch of other things like the goth book club, maybe you'd want to talk about any of them and what people could seek out that you do outside of your writing. Yeah. So I do run a goth book club every month through my Patreon. I select, you know, books once a month for everyone to read. We come together on Discord or Zoom and we talk about it. And I just, um, sometimes I'll feature like the actual author. I try to focus on a lot of indie books. There's a mix of like some older, like classic, you know, books. Like I'm thinking, for example, next year of including something by Yukio Mishima, you know, just books I've always wanted to read that are more, um, I want to say like challenging and less well-known probably like is a good way to look at it like more dark. That's why it's goth book club. Um, but it's been really good. Like once a month we talk and then I do offer my self-directed class knife party and that's how to become a better self editor. And that class includes, um, some of it is basic checklists for like just words to watch out for, but some of it is also how to develop your intuition better as a writer and then I do one-on-one -on -one manuscript coaching as well. So I'll probably also be offering in the new year some one-off workshops. Like I've been feeling really inspired by Lori Moore. And so I kind of want to do like a workshop designed around that. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about what that's going to look like, <laughs> you know, um, and those will all be posted um, on my website, just lnash.net. So. Okay, great. Well, before we end, or as a way to end, um, you mentioned near the beginning that you have two manuscripts in progress, or at least two, and one is more plotted, it's more a continuation of this new discovery of a way to write, and one is less so and more a feeling forward. Um, do you know what we can anticipate next? Is it one of those, or is there another already uh, completed manuscript in the pipeline? What should we be on the lookout for in the world of El Nash? Um, well, I don't want to talk to the project yet because I'm afraid if I talk about it that it'll never happen. Okay. <laughs> I'm like superstitious like that. But if you're listening to this, let's all like put our collective energy together toward like me completing this manuscript very quickly. <laughs> And like sending it off into the world. Yeah. Focus. I'm trying to get focused. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show today, Elle. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really good conversation. We're talking today to Elle Nash about her latest book, Deliver Me. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Elle Nash, her books, her workshops, her manuscript consultations, and more at lnash.net. For the bonus audio, Elle reads from Elizabeth Aldrich's Ruthless Little Things, which joins many readings, some craft talks, long-form conversations with translators, and more. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio, but also the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Pass Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Joe Rabins, for making the intro and the outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film at aliciajoe.com, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. 